Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Karen Dick completed her doctoral degree in clinical psychology at the University of South Dakota and currently works in private practice in Oak Bank, Manitoba. She is presently the executive director of the Manitoba Psychological Society. Before shifting to private practice, Karen spent the bulk of her career working within the rural and northern psychology program at the University of Manitoba's Department of Clinical Health Psychology and is the former chair of the rural and northern psychology section of the Canadian Psychological Association. Dr. Melissa Thiessen completed her doctoral degree in clinical psychology at McGill University and currently works in private practice in Ottawa, Ontario. Melissa also previously worked in the rural and northern psychology program at the University of Manitoba, as well as has served as the education director for the CPA, overseeing the organization's accreditation and continuing education activities. Karen and Melissa both have long-standing interest in self-care and workplace wellness initiatives. Recognizing that there are so many female mental health professionals like themselves who are trying to balance careers with additional caregiving roles, in 2019, Karen and Melissa co-founded Intentional Therapist. Their mission is to help female mental health professionals stay healthy and happy through intentional, creative, and playful self-care. Dr. Melissa Thiessen and Dr. Karen Dick, welcome back to Thoughts on Record. How are you guys doing today? We're doing good. Thanks. Great. Thanks so much for having us back, Pete. You are very welcome. I am delighted to have you back, of course. Uh, I keep hoping that every time we meet, the landscape is going to be a little bit different, but unfortunately, we only seem to be able to connect in the middle of pandemics. So here we are yet again. <laughs> yeah, that's our hope too. So so maybe our next time of connecting, it'll uh, it'll actually be different. Exactly. Maybe we should have a rule that we cannot speak again until the actual pandemic has <laughs> has elapsed. Although that might, who knows how long that would precipitate uh, waiting for the next conversation. But anyway... As listeners of the podcast may know, you are both the co-founders of the website Intentional Therapist, which has a very strong focus on self-care for female clinicians primarily, but of course, the broad principles can really apply to anybody. Uh, We've been able to chat a couple of times now on the podcast about the topic of self-care, which I think is incredibly important, but also really often only gets lip lip service, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to keep revisiting this topic and having grounded, realistic discussions about the, the reality of the profession, but you know, also with an eye to what we can do to craft a life that we don't want to escape from, to quote you, Karen. I, I've, I've used that so many times since our last discussion. I just think there's so much wisdom in that one little one little turn of phrase there. Well, and I just have to say that wasn't my quote per se. We found it, uh, I, I believe it was Melissa, actually, who found it online. Am I remembering that right, Melissa? Yeah, I, I think I discovered yeah. it, but uh, yeah, credit credit goes to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's wise. <laughs> the, the solver of all problems, the internet, and, and the creator of all problems, as far as I can tell. <laughs> so, the truth is somewhere in the middle, I guess, eh? Okay, so you know we have an outline of some of the themes that we want to explore today, and I think we're going to start by talking about some of the, the general workplace hazards that come with being a therapist. Uh, I'd love to spend some time talking about the very specific challenges associated with being a therapist in the pandemic. I, I'd love to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the teletherapy specific challenges uh, you know, that we've been able to gain some perspective on now that we've all been immersed in this for sort of a year and a half-ish, let's say. 
And then finally, um, I'd love to get your thoughts on self-care as per some of the content and, and discussions that have been happening over at Intentional Therapist. Of course, we want to point out the challenges, but it'd be great to leave people with some, uh, some thoughts around what they could be doing to mitigate some of this risk. How does that sound for a game plan? Sounds great. Excellent. Okay, with, with that, we shall begin. All right, so Melissa, you're kind enough to send along a, a list of some general workplace hazards that we might encounter as mental health professionals. I thought it was a, it was a great list. So I thought we could just kind of walk through the list and maybe have a discussion about each one of these pieces and, and each sort of chime in with respect to our experience around this. So the first one that we have here is the behavior of our, of our clients. Melissa and or Karen, what comes up for you under this heading? from the lens of self-care or from a workplace hazard that we need to be attuned to and navigate? You know, maybe before we even talk about workplace hazards, I just really want to highlight that, you know, in my experience and in, in talking with other uh, mental health professionals and, you know, psychologists, perhaps uh, more specifically, um, very few of us ever had any discussion about workplace hazards as we went through our training. And, um, you know, I, I really think in so many ways that's such a disservice to us because I think a lot of us have been experiencing these workplace hazards and because there wasn't a lot of discussion about them, perhaps judging ourselves as, uh, you know, inadequate in some way or assuming that other mental health professionals are just managing all of these so much better than us. So I just really wanted to, to highlight that before we even get into this discussion. And there's a quote in uh, Norcross and Vandenboss's book, Leaving It at the Office, um, that really stuck with me. And in some ways, I just I was almost shocked to read this, but it was so validating at the same time. And in there, the, the quote is, psychotherapy is often a grueling and demanding calling. And, you know, it. it was just so validating to actually read that because I'm sure all of us have had days where, you know, that really rings true for us. Um, so I think just the validation that comes with that statement and the identification of some of these workplace hazards is so important. I do want to highlight too that the hazards that we're referring to are from the Norcross and Vandenboss book. So if people are interested in learning more about them, they're, they're in there. It's great that there's a framework that we can direct people back to if they want to check this out in the form of a book, perhaps. Karen, I, I just wanted to say that I so deeply resonated with your idea that we, you know, we come into the profession, I think, quite naive to some of the mm -hmm. hazards that we are about to come in contact with. And I have act I have had trainees essentially indicate supervisors actively, you know, discourage conversation of some of these these elements, unfortunately, is really more just sticking to the client and, and, and anything sort of remotely personal or that would uh, veer into a territory of talking about our reaction to the work has been framed as radioactive, uh, according to some trainees, which really makes me quite disappointed. I think by and large, if I think of my, my supervisors were superb. I mean, I, if I think back, I had really good experiences and all these topics were on the table, but I appreciate that may not be the case for every single trainee that that's coming through for a lot of complex reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think for, for many of us, perhaps the topic that was discussed is kind of countertransference. But, you know, there's there's so many other issues related to workplace hazards that, um, you know, I think really are are often neglected for, for so many of us. So it's it's just so important to have these conversations. Oh, I was just, just going to add that I think it's also 
ironic that these conversations are frequently not had when we all know, and so much research supports the importance of the therapeutic relationship, right? That that's actually the biggest contributor that we can have some control over in terms of the outcomes of psychotherapy. And so it's it's both, you know, ironic and, and just sort of a shame that this isn't discussed um, nearly as often as it, as it should be, because uh, again, if the therapeutic relationship is what is going to be largely responsible for outcomes in therapy, well, doesn't that have a lot then to do with how we're taking care of ourselves and how we're showing up in that, in that therapy setting, in that particular kind of relationship? So, you know, and, and that's really, I think, a big part of what Karen and I are trying to do through Intentional Therapist is try to change some of these norms, try to change the dialogue. Uh, you know, it's just a small goal, change norms, <laughs> no big thing. Um, but it, because it is so important, so, so foundational to the work that we do. Absolutely agree. Okay, so I guess so with that, let's, let's start to wade through the different hazards. And it's interesting, I was reflecting as I was saying patient behaviors, I felt a little bit kind of icky in saying that one, right? That's not something that we sort of want to acknowledge. But I think an honest broker in a conversation like this does have to acknowledge that the behavior of clients can at times be hazardous to our mental or perhaps even physical health under the, you know, under the worst case scenario. So what, what are your thoughts on, on this piece? What comes up for you both around that particular hazard? Yeah, so um, I, I, again, just, you know, referring back to Nora Cross and Brandon Boss, in, in their book, they talk about certain presentations uh, being identified as particularly stressful for mental health clinicians. And I think, you know, when, when you hear the list, it's not going to be surprising. I think, it, you know, this resonates for all of us, right? So it's, it's clients who are suicidal, clients who are more severely depressed. Um, clients who are more kind of profoundly apathetic, clients with extensive trauma histories, and also clients who um, are more aggressive uh, in sessions, or or maybe even if they're not aggressive in session, but you know there's that aggressive kind of nature to them uh, in in their communication style, etc. So you know, not surprisingly, when we have clients like that in our offices. Uh, that's, that certainly is a workplace hazard. It's something that we are just naturally going to find more, more challenging. And I think there's, there's, they're challenging for so many reasons. One, one is right. The responsibility we feel. Um, and, and also I think we would, we would probably all agree that often, you know, some of those presentations are the ones where we're really having to be on top of our own inner reactions and managing that. Um, and all the while kind of having this, this presentation that is hopeful and calm and, and, and that takes a lot of energy for, for us to do. So I think there's a lot of reasons those client presentations are identified as, as one of the workplace hazards. No, absolutely. Karen, I really like your point of the client is the client in that moment. They're, they're doing their best. So much of it is managing what comes up for us. You know, we're getting activated most clinicians I know are fairly perfectionistic, uh, and, and oftentimes it's a sense of, of uh, helplessness or defectiveness that gets people into trouble very quickly or, or can cause a load to start to build around the plight of our clients who, who are you know experiencing uh, qu quite a bit of difficulty. So yeah, managing that internal experience is something where you have to invest, I think, a lot of time up front. A again, it's still, I think we talked about this last time. 
it's still amazing to me that therapy is not in some way, if not strongly suggested, perhaps even mandatory for folks who find themselves, you know, wandering into this profession, just given how interpersonally intense it can be. Yeah. It's, mm. that, that, that's something I've thought about many, many times. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. Uh, just the other day I had a conversation with, with uh, a friend and uh, they just kind of commented, well, you must have a psychologist. And it was so interesting because, you know, from his perspective, right. It's just, well, I thought, I thought that was just part of what you had to do part of your training. So it was interesting, right? Even kind of a general public perception that that's just part of our lives. And, and in fact, you know, I think very, very few programs actually require that anymore. So. No, absolutely. The next one on our list is working conditions. You know, I'm realizing as we go through almost any one of these particular hazards could be a full on podcast discussion because there's so much to say. So I, I guess we'll go with sort of more of the in a nutshell version of these and hopefully we can do it some justice. But working conditions, man, I could go in so many different directions. What comes up for you uh, around working conditions? So certainly, Pete, one of the the big things that I think anybody listening would be able to uh, relate to <clears throat> is just workload expectations, right? And whether that's externally imposed, right? If you work within an organization or an agency um, or internally imposed, right? Just what are, what are our own expectations or standards around uh, the number of people that we see in a day or a week or a month uh, and whether we feel as though we are like measuring up to that standard or expectation or not. Uh, so, and you know, we'll probably talk a little bit more in detail a bit later about the pandemic specifically, but certainly demand for services has been a huge um, issue over the course of the pandemic. And I think that has has impacted so many uh, mental health clinicians um, with just trying to balance their own uh their own lives through the pandemic with um, potentially increased requests for providing services. Uh, so uh, so that certainly is, is a huge one. And then uh, certainly for, for somebody who works within an organization, uh, there can be so many challenging uh, scenarios that might arise. Uh, for example, I know many psychologists who work in hospital departments don't necessarily have a psychologist as their manager. Uh, or you know, department head. It's it's somebody who maybe has a nursing background or uh, some other medical background, or maybe doesn't even have a, a health professional background. Uh, and so, of course, that's going to change somewhat the landscape of uh, how just the again the expectations for for how somebody works within that context. Uh, and and then if, even for those of us who don't work in. Uh, an organizational setting, but maybe work in private practice, then there's the whole business side of working in private practice. And of course, how many of us got training in that in, in graduate school, right? Um, probably most of us got zero, yeah, or maybe a one-hour seminar on working in private practice. So, you know, there's all of that that you need to figure out on your own. Uh, if you're lucky, maybe there's mentors that you can look to for support uh, with that. Um, but of course, the business side of, of being a therapist has all of its own unique stresses associated with it. Uh, and then, and then of course, there's also particularly as psychologists, I think, this is true for other mental health professionals as well, but I, I think we could all agree, especially for psychologists, um, 
the requirements um, from a regulatory body uh, perspective or and sometimes the not always 100% straightforward requirements from a regulatory body, uh, which, uh, you know, often I think can leave us as psychologists feeling as though we're sort of never allowed to take off our psychologist hat, uh, which of course is going to have another huge impact on uh, on our self-care and again, our expectations for ourselves or others as well. So, so those are just a, a few of the examples of uh, of working conditions that can potentially be hazards in this line of work. Melissa, I love that outline. I mean, my, my experience as a clinician or a psychologist is by way of metaphor, like walking on a tightrope where people are throwing water balloons up at me. And my job is to either deflect, catch, or throw one back <laughs> every once in a while. <laughs> and if I think about the number of professional skill sets that I have to leverage that are not mine, on a weekly or monthly basis in terms of consulting with lawyers, consulting with accountants, consulting with other uh, clinicians, consulting with physicians, maybe from more of a uh, biopsychosocial lens around medication, things like that. The, the confluence of things that we are supposed to know about in order to do the job competently is, I find it to be absolutely overwhelming. And it feels like it's only getting worse. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at the not to harp on it, but the if the, the quality assurance that we have to sort of sign off on every year as part of our regulatory college, the number of pieces of legislation that we have to endorse being sort of having a working familiarity with is, I mean, frankly, it's overwhelming to me. Uh, I'm not sure how, how you folks feel, but yep. uh, yeah, what, what's your, what is your experience of sort of being at the intersection of all these different sort of professional undertakings that we're supposed to have some sort of competency and with honestly, not very much training in some instances. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with, with everything you've said, Pete. I think it really is overwhelming at times. And I think um, a lot of uh, clinicians with the pandemic being thrown at us and having to adjust our practices to all of this, you know, this, this new way of delivering service was just another layer on top of so many already that you know, just from my conversations with with um, other clinicians, people were finding that really overwhelming to navigate all of that, right? Even developing consent forms and what kind of platforms are acceptable for us to use. And, you know, again, unfortunately, I think turning to our regulatory bodies and wanting some really specific, okay, use use this, do that, and, you know, it's just never that clear, right? So trying to navigate all of that on our own um, and then navigating with insurance companies to get virtual sessions paid for. So, you know, for sure, I think so many of us were feeling, you know, some level of, of being overwhelmed before the pandemic hit. And then now there's all of this other information we need to take in and learn. I do have a sense from consulting with colleagues or just the odd check-ins we've had in our practice that, probably the bucket is about as full as it could manage to be for most folks with, without completely sloshing over and, and probably has sloshed uh, in, in a few instances. Uh, I think we've all had our moments over the past <laughs> 18 months. I know I certainly have for, for sure, which I, I think sort of is a nice segue to the next one, emotional depletion. You know, we, we all have these sort of body budgets that we're kind of working with and, um, you know, throughout the day we're depleted and then, you know, we're, we're expected to be there for our families, loved ones, partners, friends, you know, hobbies that we might want to pour our passion into. 
Karen and Melissa, do you want to speak explicitly to the emotional depletion piece from, from your lens? What comes up for you around that? Yeah, sure. I can, I can start with that, Pete. And I, you know, I think when the category of emotional depletion, they even can uh, include kind of physical fatigue and exhaustion under that heading. Um, you know, some of the issues that can come up um, under that heading of workplace hazards, again, things like, you know, having a difficult time leaving, leaving the psychodynamics at, at the office. Um, feeling perhaps that we're not as successful as we wish we could be with clients. Um, and even just, you know, they, they mention in their book, and I think it's a really interesting point, um, activation of pre-existing psychopathology. So, you know, also just recognizing, right, that we're all human. And uh, just because we're in the mental health field doesn't make us immune to our own challenges. And so I think, again, just really thinking, thinking about it in, in quite a broad sense. And then, you know, again, I know we're going to get into the pandemic uh, topic a little later, but just adding that pandemic framework or, or uh, overlay to this category, I think it can just really uh, amplify some of those hazards just in terms of, you know, are we still, can we do this successfully um, through video and the lack of work and home boundaries. So does that make it even harder to kind of leave work at the office? Um, yeah, so, you know, I think for, for many of us, uh, some of those things resonate. I don't know, Melissa, if, if you have some additional thoughts. Yeah, I, again, certainly agree with everything you, you noted, Karen, and maybe just another important point to add there is uh, in general, even, you know, even before the pandemic, one of the big hazards um, of, of being a therapist is uh, just not, you know, there's never any guarantees that the person we're working with is going to get better. And of course, we can't offer that to them. They can't offer that to us. And just that ongoing lack of uncertainty, you know, it's part of what makes our work rewarding um, to be on this journey with somebody and um, to, to see them grow and develop and make uh, really meaningful changes in their lives. But of course, we're all starting out with zero guarantee that any of that is going to happen. And obviously, it's our hope. It's our intention. We'll do what we can to help make that possible to the, to the extent that we are in control of, of that. Um, but uh, but it's, it's a real... Um, hazard and, and reality of our work that there is this ongoing lack of uncertainty of, of success. And I know in, in the Leaving at the Office book, um, they, the authors cite that um, that's that, that piece, the lack of uncertainty of success has been cited by uh, many, many practitioners as, as one of the most stressful features of conducting therapy, right? Because we're just constantly having to deal with that unknown, right? And it can show up in, in many ways. Uh, but it's, it's always there at the outset, right? We don't, we don't know if this is going to turn out well. And, and a big part of our jobs is just simply managing that discomfort of the unknown. But again, in graduate school, I'm pretty sure we didn't receive any specific training on like managing discomfort of therapy itself, right? <laughs> so um, again, such a, a common and important hazard, but something that isn't really directly addressed in our training, unfortunately. Melissa, this brings up so much for me. I think if you read the average clinician manual, I think intentionally or not, there's often a tone of 
if, if the client isn't getting better, you're doing something wrong and you should look to this manual to get a sense of where you have gone wrong. And of course, self-reflection is incredibly important. I'm not suggesting that anyone not engage in that. But we also know that, I mean, there's data on this, the, the factors that influence the therapeutic outcome are wide and varied, and many of them have nothing to do with the therapeutic process whatsoever. So I'm always encouraging uh, you know, my trainees to identify metrics of success that you are in control of as opposed to what perhaps the client may be more in control of. Because I think wading into the psychotherapeutic process, there's the possibility of feeling like you have all the accountability with very little control. And of, and of course, for the average mammal, that is going to precipitate a very strong stress reaction and not a place where we want to hang out for a long period of time. And I'm going to add one more thought real quick. I, I think one thing that I've done to start to build some awareness is use a, a wearable device. So I have this Garmin Phoenix watch, which I absolutely love. And it has a metric called a body battery. And basically, long story short, it will sort of recharge overnight and then deplete over the day as a function of your stress level activity and things like that. I have been shocked to learn the impact that the job has had from a physiological perspective, just in terms of wearing down that battery and how quickly it gets depleted. So I think long story short, if, if one of the ways you can guard against that emotional depletion is start to measure the impact that it's having, much like we would recommend with a client, right? So getting some sense of the impact that is actually having, I think predisposes you then to start to, to monitor more actively and to promote that self-care. I'm sure you'll have lots more to say about this in terms of the combating the hazard section, but that's that's something that's come up for me recently. Pete, I, I just want to comment. I, I think that's that's so fascinating. First, that that is a, a function that is available on your uh, your your smartwatch, and I, I think that's such great data um, to to have for yourself. And then, most importantly, to reflect on and do something about. Uh, and it, it also just makes me think of there's this book that. I think it came out like 20 years ago. It's called The Power of Full Engagement. And what they really, really emphasize in that book is this idea that, um, you know, just as, as living beings, we, uh, our energy kind of goes in cycles. And so we have to be mindful of how that energy is being expended and how we're restoring it. And that we're doing this sort of in this sort of wave-like fashion, not that anybody can see what I'm doing with my hands right now, but it's a beautiful wave function, <laughs> Imagine yeah. a, a wave, yeah, a sign function that we're, we're restoring ourselves throughout the day, right. Giving ourselves those opportunities to, to replenish and restore and just recognizing that like, that's just how our bodies are built. Absolutely. Uh, when I had uh, Randy Nessie on the podcast, who's an evolutionary psychiatrist, just talking about how, you know, something like bipolar just re reflects a that very normative process, but just with, it, with an extremely large dynamic range. But he had this anecdote in the book about people will come in after a big event, like being married or something like that, and they're depressed and they're like, oh my God, have I done the wrong thing? And he'll explain, no, 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 that's just your body re-regulating itself after being on a real high. It has to come down. It goes under so that you can recuperate. And then you'll come back and find the norm. So yeah, that, that wave function is critical, I think, to, to regulating uh, ourselves. The next piece is psychic isolation. I'll be so curious to hear what uh, you both might have to say around this. It's the strangest job in a sense where you're in a room all day by yourself. No one sees you doing your job. Colleagues form impressions of you based on probably how smart you sound at case discussion or whatnot. We very rarely see each other sort of like in the moment do, you know, engaging in our craft. 
Uh, I'm not sure if psychic isolation taps into this. It's, I'm sure if it's a part of it, but what is what comes up for you around psychic isolation? What's the conceptualization there? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, exactly what you're talking about, Pete, is what the authors had intended when, when they use this term psychic isolation. They see that as absolutely one of the hazards uh, being working alone. And in their book, you know, they even talk about um, 9-11 and how clinicians, and I was actually one of those clinicians, I had no idea what was going on. I was in sessions with clients. I, I had no idea what was going on. And then, you know, halfway through the day, I emerge and all of a sudden, like, oh my gosh, the world has changed and I was oblivious to it. Um, so certainly that's part of it. And some of the other things they talk about uh, related to psychic isolation are things like, you know, having to set aside our personal concerns, right? Again, going into session and, and having to really compartmentalize our own stuff and, and set it aside. Um, also having to deal with um, situations where our work uh, or profession might feel devalued or attacked in some way, whether that's kind of at a broader level. Um, and, and fortunately, I think that's shifting a little bit. Mental health is gaining, you know, a bit more uh, publicity and uh, the importance of it is being recognized more. Um, so, you know, things like um, even just being inactive and uh, sitting in one place, they kind of include in the, in the psychic isolation as well. And, and when you think about the physical isolation from, you know, the world and colleagues, again, you know, just touching briefly on the pandemic, that, you know, I think that, again, was probably quite amplified. And, you know, perhaps initially when the pandemic started, we were pretty good at, you know, making sure we had some connections with colleagues. And now that it's gone on for so long, you know, I'm hearing some people just noticing that that's kind of faded away. And so now we're really working uh, in, in quite isolated ways. No, couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm really thankful that our, at our practice, we have sort of practice-wide check-ins for whoever wants to come by. It's probably every six to eight weeks. It's something like that. And that's a really valuable tool for sort of A, connecting and B, I think just normalizing the experience of of going through this. We Again, we're so often prioritizing uh, other folks in the, in the course of the provision of our services that it's good to connect every once in a while and just acknowledge the the humanity on the other side of the uh, other side of the, the room. Melissa, was there anything you wanted to add around the psychic isolation piece? Yeah, I'll just I'll just add that uh, one of the things that we've actually been doing through intentional therapist is we've uh, we we are currently holding some small group meetings with other uh, therapists, and uh, the feedback that we've gotten is that it has been so valuable for people to have that regular opportunity. It's just been like every month to six weeks. Uh, just that opportunity to connect with each other and, and really uh, resonate with challenges that others might be facing. And, and, and just to really acknowledge and appreciate that we're all facing similar challenges. There's nothing wrong with us, with, with us that these things are happening, uh, that it's okay that there's things that are coming up that we might be struggling with, that it's okay to do things like set boundaries, take some time off, whatever. And, uh, and, and I, and I think that the biggest piece kind of related to what Karen was just saying is, is that, uh, again, I think maybe earlier in the pandemic, a lot of us were much more intentional about 
staying connected with friends and coworkers and loved ones. And as the pandemic has stretched on, um, I, I think some people, you know, varies for everybody, but I think there's, uh, again, some kind of some fatigue and, uh, and just this almost like a, an increasing sense of isolation. Uh, that that's showing up for a lot of people. So being able to have a mechanism to to maintain um, both the personal but also the professional connections, especially with working from home, right? We don't have hallway conversations anymore. Mm-hmm. It's that's such a big loss, really, um, and and not just for therapists, for anybody working from home, right? Uh, so much just collaboration and personal relationship building happens from those hallway conversations. And so I, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to uh, completely replicate that in a virtual environment, but, uh, but definitely being intentional about maintaining those relationships is at least one way that, that we can try to uh, reduce some of the impact of that particular hazard. Absolutely. Uh, let's switch over to a slightly different kind of relationship, which is the therapeutic relationship. And I can just imagine all the things that might come up here. There's one that I want to integrate that I've been more attuned to recently, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it very specifically, but of course we'll, we'll discuss therapeutic relationships broadly is this idea of kind of moral injury, right? Where we are sitting with clients who we have a, a positive regard for and sometimes we bear witness to unimaginable things or things which, you know, just are incredibly terrible and we have no ability to really do anything directly about it. And I've really been reflecting lately on the impact that that's had on me as a human being, just that sort of that front row seat to disaster after disaster with really no ability to, to deal with it. And it really erodes some of your sense of the world, yourself and other people, if you're not on top of it. So I, I personally have noticed that that is a hazard that's embedded within the therapeutic relationship. I'm sure there's others. I'll, I'll turn it over to you. What, what are your thoughts on the therapeutic relationship and hazards embedded within that? So Pete, I, I just want to highlight I, the points you make, I think are so important and so key. Um, and, and it's interesting, you know, I just, it, it reminds me of some comments that I've been hearing from some clinicians through the pandemic and how um, some of them, and particularly I've been hearing from folks working with, with youth, that they feel like, you know, they're, they've done everything that they've, they can. They've used all the skills that they have. And from their perspective, it's not making a big enough difference. And I think that goes so much to back to what you're saying, Pete, that, you know, when people are going through just, you know, really challenging situations and, you know, traumatic uh, life events, um, what is a realistic expectation within our role and what we can hope to accomplish? I, you know, and I think that that goes over a few of the hazards, but certainly the therapeutic relationship, I think, um, is is a, a component in that as well. Um, so, you know, in terms of therapeutic relationships, I think the other piece is um, the ability to develop therapeutic rapport with a range of clients. And again, going back to how certain presentations or perhaps certain clients who have certain histories, um, understandably, the development of the the therapeutic relationship might feel very different and uh, can certainly feel very um, stressful and and certainly a hazard that I'm sure many of us have encountered. Um, 
the, the other thing that falls within this category is kind of that sense of responsibility for our clients again, right? And that goes back to what I was just mentioning a bit earlier about uh, clinicians' experiences through the pandemic and feeling this sense of responsibility to really be able to alleviate their pain and suffering when realistically we're still in a pandemic. You know, what's realistic in terms of our ability to um, have an impact on their pain and suffering? Um, so, you know, some of those things I think just really resonate for, for me with, uh, within the context of the therapeutic relationship. I don't know, Melissa, if you have some, some other thoughts as well. Yeah, I, I think another thing that is so unique to the therapy context, of course, is this idea, you know, like we were saying earlier, the therapeutic relationship is the foundation and at the same time, it's very much this one-sided kind of relationship, right? And so, and relating to what we were just talking about too with the psychic isolation, right? We're sort of expected to be this blank slate. I mean, again, depends a little bit on your therapeutic orientation, but, you know, blank slate, no personal disclosures. Uh, and, and I think that is something that because of the pandemic maybe has had people, um, uh, reflecting on a bit further, you know, uh, because obviously we can't hide that we're also going through the <laughs> pandemic with everyone else. Yeah. But it, 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 of course, just the nature of the therapy relationship kind of sets us up for um, just right these sometimes kind of odd experiences with people and incredibly amazing and rewarding experiences. But it's also like it's kind of in secret, right? And uh, I actually. <laughs> this really stuck with me. I, I recently read um, Lori Gottlieb's book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, uh, which is about her experiences as a therapist in therapy herself. And, uh, and, and one of the ideas that she raises is, is that there's actually a lot of parallels between therapy and porn in the <laughs> sense that it's, it's this experience that is often just like between, you know, two people or a person and, you know, a, some entity, uh, and it's often done in secret and you don't necessarily want somebody to find out that this is what you're doing. Right. <laughs> so of course, hopefully that is, is where the similarities end between the two, but it, it really just speaks to that idea of, right. Of the confidentiality, which of course is so important and is there for really important reasons, but at the same time, right, it, it also highlights the challenges with stigma and people, you know, I'm sure we've all had clients who don't tell their loved ones that they're in therapy uh, and, you know, and, and don't want, you know, don't want people to see them coming into the building where our office might be uh, located. So it's just interesting, right, because we develop these really deep um, relationships with people to the extent that that's possible in the confines of the therapeutic relationship. But right. We know so much about, um, people's presence, their pasts, their families, you know, their hopes, their dreams, their struggles. Um, and, and so it is really interesting too, that, um, then, you know, so we go through this journey with people and then hopefully, ideally, right, we get the opportunity to have a nice ending to that relationship as well. Because that's the other thing. We enter into these relationships with kind of the goal that it's going to end at a maybe predetermined, maybe not predetermined time. Uh, and, and so, you know, Karen and I have also talked recently just about the impact of the ending of the therapeutic relationship, mm -hmm. not just for the client, but for the therapist as well. And in particular, when 
um, when maybe therapy ends prematurely or unexpectedly and how, you know, the, the ending of the therapy relationship, that opportunity to like say goodbye, it's for the client, but it's also for the therapist because, you know, hopefully we've been impacted by that relationship as well. So I, I think it's just, you know, again, so fascinating kind of the, um, in some ways sort of impossible situation that we're in of the, what's required for the relationship to work, but what we sort of have to leave out of it as well. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, as it's funny as you're talking, Melissa, a few things have also come up for me. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I've kind of find hard to deal with sometimes is when we, we do have a, a, a good opportunity to have some closure. Um, so our services are, are ending and uh, not knowing how they, how they do in the future. And, and, you know, I, I've been so lucky. I've had a couple of occasions where clients have actually called me just to let me know how they're doing. And it, you know, it's, it was just so nice to be able to, to, to kind of hear that. And uh, another conversation that's come up recently amongst us um, chatting was even how it affects us when one of our clients passes away and it's and it's not related to suicide because of course it impacts us um, when one of our clients dies by suicide but recently we were having a conversation about uh, just the impact it has on us when we notice in one of the obituaries that one of our clients has passed away. And it was, it was funny in this group of us, I think there were three of us who recently had that experience and, you know, feeling like, well, how do you, how do you kind of process this? Right. And it just, it was just so interesting to hear other clinicians had the same experience and again, just kind of normalizing it and, and validating our, our experiences. Absolutely. I, I've really just come to conclude that the therapeutic relationship is like any relationship. It has multitudes sort of built into it. And Melissa, to your point, like, it's funny, like we leverage it almost mechanistically as a way of getting the job done. And I think the end user experience for the client is that it's, you know, very warm and empathic and envelops them in support, which is all true, but it's in the service of something very specific and not really in the sense of like sort of co-crafting a relationship where we, we are expecting that sort of energy to come back in, in return. Mm -hmm. But it can be confusing because of course, because of when your body's acting in one particular way, like when you're acting out a caring empathic relationship is very, it, sometimes the frame can get lost, I think for, for the client in particular, right? So of course, we've all had the experience of clients referring to us as friends or, or perhaps sort of conceptualizing mm -hmm. us as friends and we're not friends. It's a very, very different uh, relationship. So that, Melissa, I totally resonate with the, with the complexity around that. And, and then Karen, to your point, it's, it's, it's again, it's like, okay, so I have this relationship with this person that in part is, mech is mechanistic simply because that's part of the, the technology of delivering the therapy. But then I also care about them as a human being. And then if they pass, what am I supposed to feel about that? Like, there's not really a framework to perhaps maybe, you know, conceptualize that. So I think that's very interesting. I would love to continue to talk about therapeutic relationships. I find it to be the, among the most fascinating uh, parts of the job, but we have so much other content that we want to get to that I think has a lot of value. I think we've alluded to this one in many different ways, particularly through the lens of the pandemic, but personal disruptions, right? So as far as the client's concerned, and I think rightly so, when they show up on the screen or in our office, we're there, we're there engaged 100%, they're going to get value for the 
you know, in, in many cases, very large sum of money that they are providing in order for this professional service to be delivered competently, empathically, effectively, all those good things. And yet in the background, we might be managing personal gong shows that can make it very difficult to bring that professional that we endeavor to be to, to the office. So I, I would love to have a bit of a discussion around personal disruptions and how those can throw wrenches into our well-intentioned plans to be these amazing professionals day in, day out. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to reference back to uh, the Leaving It at the Office book. Uh, in there, they, they uh, cite some research that indicated that, um, you know, mental health professionals are just as likely to experience life disruptions as others, right? We're, we're humans. Um, imagine that. <laughs> I know, imagine that. I think we, we, we want to deny that sometimes, or, or we've been giving the mess, given the message we should deny that. But uh, the, the research that they cite also indicates that we're only a tad better at dealing with life disruptions and stressors as compared to um, other folks kind of with similar uh, socioeconomic uh, status. So I think that's really important for us to remember. Um, and hopefully it, it will lead into giving ourselves permission to reach out and get the supports we need when we are going through some difficult times. And, you know, that includes finding our own psychologist or therapist to to help us uh, when we encounter some of these challenges. And, you know, it, it kind of goes back something that I think we, we often do think of the service that we offer as something that, you know, has a start and end. And, and I almost wonder if that's part of our challenge too. We need to start thinking about what we deliver as similar to what a, a family doc does right? We're going to have clients, they're going to come to us at different points um, and, and treat mental health and mental wellness more as we do physical health and wellness and extending that to ourselves as well, that it's, you know, it's okay to, to have these check-ins and, uh, and just really, uh, again, kind of change, change the rules and talk, and talk about this. I remember at one of our past uh, interviews with you, Pete, we all kind of touched on this and all three of us said, well, yeah, we've all uh, accessed uh, therapy services at, at some point. So I think just really talking about that and normalizing it is so, so important. Couldn't agree more. One thing that I want to mention really quick that I think is particularly germane to clinicians and private practice around this piece is if you're sick or you have a child who's sick or a partner that has something come up with their family or, or whatnot, it's the real financial hit that one will take if you step away from the job. And I think there's ways one can insulate uh, themselves from that in, in various ways. I know I'm always telling uh, residents when I do the seminar here in Ottawa about private practice that you know, build a practice that, or build a budget that you could easily be missing 25% of your income and you would still be able to make a go of it for four to six months or, or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a very real dynamic that needs to be acknowledged for clinicians who are in a fee for service environment, which is that if you're not seeing people, you are not getting income and that can get very stressful very quickly. Now, of course, no one put a gun to our head in terms of picking this as a job. I think it's also important to put that out there as well. We're all volunteers. We haven't been drafted into the psychology army. And, uh, you know, we're, we have to take ownership of our choice. And there's a very real consequence to not being at work for many of us. 
And Pete, your points around the the financial concerns, I think also really speaks to like, what is one's mindset, right? Is it a mindset of scarcity versus abundance? Uh, I think it also speaks to mindsets around like, if you do work in private practice, uh, what are the fees that you charge? How do you uh, implement fee policies? Uh, and I and I think, you know, certainly as psychologists, um, because of our many years of training, um, we are able to charge appropriate fees for our services. But even within that, there's still a range of, of fees that people charge and maybe for varying reasons, right? And, and there may be guilt that's going into those decisions, right? Needless guilt that's going into those decisions. Uh, and I also know, you know, I have colleagues who have different therapy backgrounds and for example, you know, um, have done work for various insurance companies and are reimbursed at really low rates. And, and, you know, the work that they're doing, the service they're providing is being completely inappropriately reimbursed. And, and that causes such incredible stress for them. Uh, and, and then can get people into these impossible situations of, right, they've built these relationships with their clients. They don't want to leave their clients hanging, but they're, you know, they're barely being reimbursed for the cost of their office space. Um, and that's just not a sustainable business model, obviously. And then of course can seep into the therapeutic relationship, right? Can create resentment um, and no fault of the clients, but mm -hmm. is again, just a reality that, that, that can be present at times. And again, not something that anybody ever really talks about. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Yeah, no, na navigating the business, the intersection of business and the provision of a health service, uh, I, I find to be always a work in progress, often more art than science. Uh, there's a few principles that can guide you, but very much it, it, it's sort of a, a values-driven undertaking that you have to find your own kind of equilibrium with. What I want to do now, if it's okay, just keeping an eye on the time, is I want to migrate over to talking about some of the specific impacts that the pandemic has had from a, from a hazard perspective. Now we've touched on a lot of these already, but perhaps there's some that we want to put a finer uh, point on. I think Karen, it was you ha that had mentioned just that continual pa like demand of adaptation that's been coming. Now there's this, now there's that. I think the next evolution for many of us is the return to the office. You know, can we ask clients about vaccination status? Are we allowed to ask colleagues about vaccina vaccination status? How do we conduct exposures in the community with client with clients who are not vaccinated? Can you know is it is it even ethical to to do that? There's just so many things. So I'll I'll, I'll just park it there for the moment. But would love your respective takes on you know what are some of the pandemic specific hazards that have come up or or you're hearing from your community uh, as far as intentional therapist goes. Yeah, so I guess I can start with that, Pete. I, I think uh, one thing that's really important to to recognize is um, the changing landscape since the pandemic started to where we are now. Uh, because certainly um, some of the surveys that have been done with psychologists are are really showing that you know our experiences are quite different now compared to where they were early on in the pandemic, right? So. Um, earlier on in the pandemic, you know, some of the surveys that were being done were showing that most psychologists didn't have any experience in delivering telepsychology um, and that uh, they were obviously faced with kind of rapidly switching their practice. Uh, many of them didn't feel particularly competent to be delivering service in this way. They were reporting clients weren't really keen on doing this or they were waiting 
So a lot of um, psychologists and, and therapists were reporting quite a drop in their caseload. And of course, for those of us in, in private practice, that meant a pretty significant uh, drop in income for us as well. Uh, so, you know, I think, oh, and I think the other thing was people were initially feeling that their ability to deliver service through telepsychology perhaps wasn't as good as if they were seeing uh, clinicians in, in person. So, you know, I think, I think that's where we were at. And now fast forward, what, like 19 months, and it's a very different landscape where um, now, you know, a lot of uh, clinicians are saying their caseloads are overwhelming because of some of the mental health impacts of the pandemic. So now their, their struggle is, how do I navigate this real increased demands when uh, I don't have really too much availability to, to be doing more work? And how do you navigate that? Can you set boundaries? Do you end up overburdening yourself by just kind of wanting to help um, all these folks? And, and as you said, now people are starting to think about going back to the office. How do we do that? And for, for some, and I'm I, in that category, I've been providing some uh, degree of in-person services pretty much throughout the pandemic, um, which, you know, is also another, it goes back to workplace hazards, right? Um, what that was like providing service in person. And you really highlighted, Pete, some of the other issues coming up now, right? Can we ask people about vaccines? Uh, can we ask our colleagues about vaccines? And, and how to kind of navigate this new emerging uh, landscape in our practice. So I think that's just kind of a, a very broad overview of kind of the trends that, that have been out there in terms of adapting to the pandemic. Karen, I think your point is so well made around that the landscape we're in now is not the one we started in. And I, I re reflect on my own transition of, I think I laugh when I think about it now. When we first started going virtual, I was literally set up at this like crappy poker table or card table type apparatus with my laptop and really just trying to, you know, hanging on for dear life, trying to make it work. As I look around my office now, I'm surrounded by sort of a full, fully teched out, you know, home office compliment. So like, and, and really, to be honest, um, knowing that probably a couple days in the office, you know, would do some good both for myself as well as just for the overall ethos at work. There's a big part of me that just is really comfortable now in the sort of uh, environment that I've been able to craft for myself. And, and I've noted a lot of advantages that weren't obvious at the beginning. You know, so it's such an interesting, uh, as much as there's hazards to navigate, there's also been some opportunity that is, has crept in here, in here as well. But um, I suspect it's one of those things when we look back in two or three years, we'll wonder how we did it all. And, and yet we did because we had to. So I'm under no illusion that like the stress is still super high. There's just been a pro process of adaptation that I think we've, we've probably gone through. Um, Melissa, did you want to add any thoughts around sort of the pandemic specific uh, hazards that we're all kind of tiptoeing through right now. Yeah, I, I, and I'm not sure if this is necessarily a hazard, but I think it's a really interesting aspect of our adaptation and, and just the, the fact that we all needed to find a way to so quickly pivot uh, and, and 
change how we were delivering services at the outset of the pandemic, of course, not knowing how long it was going to be for. And, you know, hopefully we're not going to speak again in a year and be like, and here we still are. <laughs> but um, certainly at the beginning. You, you just guarantee that's going to happen. Yeah, I know, I know. I have that kind of power. <laughs> but right at the beginning, we all probably thought a few weeks, maybe a few months, no way this is going to be more than a few months, right? And so I think what's happened is, you know, and, and thankfully there were, there were already platforms available for us to use like Zoom and others um, that, that made it possible to make that shift to online service delivery. But I also think that there's all kinds of things that we probably, because we've all still been kind of in survival mode throughout all this time, um, there, some of those decisions, you know, looking back, if we had, if we had intentionally gone into virtual service delivery provision, you know, would we have made the same choices that we did? Uh, or would we have, you know, set ourselves up in different ways? Uh, and and I, obviously people can still be making decisions now that are intentional about, um, I want to do things online a bit differently than the way I started a year and a half ago. At the same time, and this is where it's maybe a little bit of a hazard, once you're already kind of signed up for a particular system, right? If it's like a, an online, you know, electronic uh, record system, it's not a simple thing to switch over to a different system, right? But maybe, and of course, in the intervening time, different platforms have added new features. And so maybe now everything that you need could be available in one platform, um, but you're already, you know, invested in this other platform. So I think uh, that it's just a such an interesting thing to be navigating again because we've all we were all sort of shoved into this situation, uh, whether we wanted to be in it or not, uh, and and I think that just makes for a slightly different landscape than if everybody had decided at once let's all you know let's all do virtual services because we think that's the best way to make this more accessible for more people. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I think it's I, I think that's probably an interesting thing that's maybe happening now that were this many months into the pandemic. That was you know, certainly not something that was present at the beginning. It's interesting, a couple of things I just wanna highlight as well that really do um, kind of, if you think about the workplace hazards in the midst of the pandemic have really come up. It goes back to client presentations. So uh, clients who are expressing suicidal thoughts or have histories of suicide, um, you know, those, those presentations were uh, stressful for us to begin with. And that particular group of clients is also the group that therapists are saying they're least comfortable seeing through uh, virtual services. So, you know, just certain populations, I think, and trying to adapt it to a virtual um, delivery has been more challenging. So I think about, you know, clients uh, with that are more at risk for suicide. And I know for me personally, trying to do play therapy with kids virtually, you know, that was quite a learning curve and, uh, you know, trying to do my best to adjust that. So, you know, I think, again, that's really key. And the therapeutic relationship and establishing that virtually um, I think for some people has been a bit of a challenge because one survey found that uh, psychologists were much more willing to do virtual service with uh, pre-existing clients, much less likely to agree to see new clients virtually. 
And, you know, I, I suppose that could be for a lot of different reasons, but one of the reasons I wondered about is uh, the impact we felt that doing this virtually had on our ability to develop a uh, therapeutic rapport with clients. Imagine the data that's going to come out of whoever is studying this, and, and presumably there are many, many uh, groups looking at dynamics around this. So I think we're going to get a really rich a set of data out of this at the very least. Um, I, I want to pick up just very quickly before we move over to combating the hazards on, on some of the stuff that you mentioned, Melissa, you know, from a, from a practice leadership perspective, it's created this real challenge of just like you said, all the platforms now are trying to, um, you know, be everything to everybody. And so if you've had your services distributed across three or four different providers and then you see that they're all gradually doing the same thing. It's almost like picking a racehorse, right? It's like, okay, who do we, who are we going to go all in on that will be around in three years and that will and the, do the best job of delivering the service? I, I also think too that, you know, in terms of navigating things like rent or, or overhead, you know, it's leading to some very interesting discussions, right? Because it's becoming obvious to clinicians that, hey, maybe I don't need to be in an office five days a week or I can just have a home office exclusively, so, you know, what, what is a practice? What is the va value added of a practice? These are adding, these are overnight pivots in the way that we think about the provision of services and service delivery models. Very, very interesting. And the last one I'll say real quick is I do think the digital distribution of services has created the possibility of these winner take all scenarios vis-a-vis -vis Amazon or Google or, or things like that. So you, you see if a, if a practice was to come along and try to scale quickly enough by sort of subsuming everything, there is an opportunity for them to do that, right? Because the framework is there to do it. So I suspect somebody will come along at some point and there will be the commodification of psychotherapy vis-a-vis -vis like a like a Walmart of psychotherapy or something where there'll be this digitally distributed network uh, from, from a single provider who's this giant conglomerate because just economy of scale will dictate probably that this happens. Anyway, I'll park it there. I mean, no one has a crystal ball, but what this looks like in five or 10 years, who knows? I heard the, the CEO from Shopify talking about how the year 2030 showed up 10 years early and we're all scrambling ah. you know, to, to adapt to it. So anyway, we'll, we'll leave it there for the moment. Okay, so... I think it's important to balance the discussion of all the hazards with things that we can do to offset those hazards. Uh, you know, we, we want to end on a constructive note, not because it's just a nice thing to do, but because there's actual tangible things that we can do. And this is where intentional therapist comes in in a big way. So I'd love to get your perspective. You've been advocating for a model that is built on sort of the four C's of self-care. I'm not sure how you guys want to work through this or, or talk through it, but I'll turn it over to you. What are the four C's of self-care or, or how would one understand those as, as far as self-care goes? Yeah, thanks so much, Pete, for making sure that we spend some time on this as well. And so just before we uh, articulate the four C's, what we're calling the four C's, I think it's so important to just underline that, uh, as, as I think you said at the beginning of this interview, self-care often gets just lip service and, um, and, and people, therapists included, maybe even therapists especially, uh, can can easily discount self-care. And we can think of it in these very stereotypical kinds of ways, right? Massages, bubble baths, uh, vacations. And those things are important, but but that is not the totality of self-care. And, and particularly when you're in a profession where you are your tool, basically, um, it's so important to be taking care of ourselves beyond 
treats, right? And 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 because again, just uh, maybe <laughs> one more shout out to uh, Norcross and and Vandenbos's book. Um, they, I really love how they they refer to self care as a skillful attitude and lifelong commitment, right? Again, it's not just about chocolate and bubble baths and massages and what have you. It's really, it's about how we're approaching our work. It's an attitude, it's a stance, and it's something that we're always committing to. It's something we're always keeping in the forefront at the very least in the, in the background of our days, um, because that is how we can make our profession sustainable for ourselves. It's really the only way that we can do that. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's really how we try to view this as well, that this is not just about kind of band-aid solutions. This is about how we're approaching our work, really making it foundational to what we do. So we've, we've sort of looking at kind of pulling together all these various ideas, you know, from this great book that we've been referencing today, uh, but, and all of the research that that's based on what we've come up with is, is a framework that we affectionately call our, our four C's of self-care and the four C's being connection or community, compassion, courage, and creativity. And we think that these four really provide a really helpful framework for any of us, not just mental health professionals, not just female mental health professionals, any mental health professional, really any health professional, really any person, you know, this is how we're best going to, to take care of ourselves. Um, so we can certainly uh, just talk a little bit more about what we mean by, by each of those uh, pillars and how, how that can uh, be implemented in our, in our day-to-day lives. And Karen, maybe do you want to start with connection? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think when we talk about community and connection, you know, certainly the, the thing that probably uh, comes to most people's minds is the importance of connecting with other uh, people who are in similar professions with us in similar situations. Um, And just the huge value that we know comes from accessing uh, those kinds of supports. And I, I think really, as you know, referring back to what Melissa mentioned earlier on in, in uh, the podcast about us wanting to change the norms, the only way we can really start changing norms and start changing the rules is by coming together as a group and as a whole and making this okay, making this part of the discussion so that it just becomes part of our work. Um, so, you know, and there's certainly lots of research, right, that, that shows the, the importance of us having support on kind of mitigating stress and such. And certainly as uh, therapists, we're, we're, there's certainly, uh, we're no exception to that. Um, so I think that is so important. And then when we think about the female mental health professional, uh, just going specifically with that. Um, that population, right? There's other norms that um, have been kind of thrust upon us and messages we've gotten in terms of our caregiving roles and what's acceptable for us to do and not do. So I think, again, um, having a connection with a group of of like-minded women who are recognizing some of the limitations with some of those societal messages and supporting one another and acting in ways that kind of go against that because uh, it's not easy and guilt is gonna show up. It's just it's just a natural uh, emotion that's gonna come up when, when we uh, act against these rules. 
Um, the other thing, though, that it's interesting, I've been thinking a little bit more about when we think of community and connection. I think the other part of, of what's important within this pillar is kind of reconnecting with why we do what we do and reconnecting with the meaning of our work and actually building in opportunities for us to pause and reflect on that. Because I think so often we just go through our day and we don't actually sit at the end of the day and really think about um, the differences we, we might've made in, in some people's lives throughout, throughout our day and throughout our careers. And I think it is so important to connect with that and reflect on why did we choose this as a profession and connect with our values and how those can show up at work. So, you know, I think it can go uh, to connecting more inwardly with our values and, and what's meaningful, but also connecting outwardly towards a like-minded community. Well, I really like that. I, I forget where I heard this, but there's that great saying, uh, you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And Karen, I think that's exactly what you're alluding to. Like if you can surround yourself with a group of like-minded folks who share these values, uh, you're, you're halfway there. In, in terms of avoiding some of the guilt and you have people to look to who are mirroring, mirroring back some of the chains that you'd like to see in yourself, which is, which is so essential. I really like that idea of sort of a, a sense maybe of being integrated internally around why, what you're doing and why you're doing it and, and reconnecting with that. So what, why am I doing this again? Compassion of course is, is the next one. I think compassion is probably one that gets a ton of lip service, but no one really knows what that means or people don't want to do it because they don't want to let themselves off the hook or like it, it it's, it's kind of a radioactive one uh, for a couple different reasons. But what, what is your lens on compassion? I'd love to hear how you've worked through compassion as, as leveraging it as, as a tool. So Pete, I think compassion also goes back to what Karen was just saying about community and connection, because I think one of the biggest benefits, and this is, at least feedback that, that we've had from some of our, our workshop and group participants as well is just hearing from other people in a similar situation, right? Other female mental health professionals, uh, it basically is giving, giving those individuals permission to engage in their, their own self-care practices, giving them permission to do things that might feel a bit uncomfortable for them, like maybe raising fees, right? Just giving them permission to, uh, just to do whatever it is that maybe for various reasons has been difficult for them to do. And, and I think that the, the permission comes from that sense of normalcy, right? Again, seeing that other people are struggling with the same things that we're struggling with. Uh, and so I really see the connection and compassion really going together because that's where the permission comes from. Um, to, to engage in the activities or practices that are going to be most beneficial to us. And so, of course, when we talk about compassion, it, we're also talking about inward and outward compassion. So very much so starting with self-compassion um, because we need to, yeah, we need to have compassion for ourselves for those days where we maybe weren't at the top of our game, right? Uh, or self-compassion for whatever it is that might be difficult in our own personal lives. Uh, and of course, compassion for our clients, but then also really importantly, compassion for our colleagues, because there's this interesting thing that I think often can happen, uh, I think, especially in private practice, but certainly not exclusive to private practice, where 
we can like inadvertently start to feel like we're in competition with other mental health professionals, right? Even our own colleagues. And part of that sense of competition can come from, you know, just uh, our own unrealistic standards about like, I need to be the best therapist I can be, or even just, I need to be the best therapist. (laughs) And so we're constantly maybe going to be evaluating ourselves against other colleagues. And again, like what exactly are we evaluating ourselves based on, right? Like you were saying earlier, Pete, typically we're not in session with our colleagues. So we don't know what they actually do in their sessions, right? But it's all just these perceptions that we're creating. And so, you know, sort of a dark side of that is we can also, um, and I think this is something we don't always want to acknowledge, but we can also easily become very judgmental Mm -hmm. of how we think our colleagues are or aren't taking care of themselves as well, right? And then that unfortunately can lead to maybe not reaching out to colleagues. Uh, it also, if, if we're lacking in self-compassion, it might mean that if we're struggling with something, we're not going to reach out to colleagues because of fear of maybe being judged by them because we recognize we're maybe judging other people. So we don't want to be judged by them. And then we don't reach out. And then, right, it's just the slippery slope of, uh, of not feeling supported, um, uh, unnecessarily. Right. So again, it's really self-compassion as well as, um, compassion, um, towards, uh, others in our communities, as well as our, our clients, of course. Um, and, and, and just recognizing that this doesn't have to mean a 30 minute loving kindness meditation every day, right? This can simply <laughs> mean talking to ourselves in a kind voice. Um, it can mean just uh, like giving ourselves a few minutes um, after a challenging session with somebody and, uh, and, and just recognizing that there's a lot that's been maybe stirred up in us uh, and just giving ourselves some compassion for the difficulty of doing that. Uh, so, right, it, there, there can be lots of small ways that we can be extending that compassion towards ourselves first and foremost, uh, but, but also to, to our colleagues and, and loved ones too. I really like that, Melissa. And I, if I could be so bold, I mean, I, I think there's an adjacent concept to compassion and self-respect, right? You, you, you have to respect yourself enough to give yourself that compassion. And in watching, you know, yourself very carefully, you may find instances where you're disrespecting yourself in a way that you would never do towards another human if they were not you, right? In terms of taking breaks or, you know, there's that old joke with private practice, like welcome to private practice where you're treat yourself worse than any boss ever would. And (laughs) that's, that's, you know, sadly kind of true on some level. So that, I think that's an interesting, interesting reflection. The, the next C is courage. And I think courage is probably required to implement any of these, but I'd love to hear how you've conceptualized courage uh, in, in the context of the four C's. Yeah. So I think that's an excellent point, Pete. I think courage does kind of flow through, through all of this. Um, so I think, you know, when, when we're thinking about courage, we think about things like uh, having the courage to face our humanity as therapists, right? To recognize that we are human just because we're in this field doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be particularly uh, adept at dealing with a, a major life event or, or a crisis that comes our way. And, you know, also having the courage to, to speak up and change the rules and to do things that are really difficult um, 
and yet will lead to some positive change and positive growth. And I think for, for in our discussions with, with different therapists, some of the things that have come up as things that require courage or things like setting boundaries, uh, raising fees as a way of, you know, recognizing our worth in terms of the services that we provide, uh, having the courage to take time off, making the decision to change the population you work with, um, moving away from third-party payer, um, taking on new roles, learning new technologies, right? All of that actually can really contribute to our self-care, uh, but also takes courage. So I think anything that is really hard to do or that el elicits these feelings of guilt um, are things that we think about when we think of kind of courageous actions and, and how important that is to, to uh, self-care and, and to our ability to really grow as, as humans. Karen, I, I love it. Like courage, I think might be among the most important value one could hold because without courage, you can hold all these values and never be able to implement them. Perhaps I, I'm just thinking recently, there's a third party provider that I've made a very strategic and tactical decision to walk away from. It was just a huge source of ongoing distress and it, and it's meant disruption to my relationship with some of my clients. But at the end of the day, it was, I was like, this is an abusive relationship I'm in with this third party provider. If I can use that a little bit liberally, it became an issue of integrity and of self-respect, right? It's like, can I really look in the mirror and say, I'm going to tolerate this, uh, you know, week in, week out. So anyway, but it, you know, it took courage to implement that. But I love what you said that anything worth doing is probably going to be difficult and uh, is going to require you marshalling, you know, sometimes who knows what might be asked of you in terms of what you need to do to get something important done in your life. Right. So. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the courage notion also goes back to creating a life we don't have to escape from. Right. So that this isn't just about avoiding burnout. This is really about thriving and enjoying our work, enjoying our personal lives and, uh, and, and not missing out on something simply because we're afraid or it causes other uncomfortable feelings like guilt. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there's that, again, I feel like I'm just spouting a bunch of sayings, but I, I only try to retain sayings that I actually feel have value because there's a lot that I don't think do, but you know, easy decisions, hard life, hard decisions, easy life. You know, that's yeah. sort of a quick and dirty, mm -hmm. but I, I do think that is the way that life works. It's, it's a really nice little sum up. Yeah. The last C, creativity. Uh, I, I think there's just probably so much value here. And again, a whole podcast in itself. I've really tried to integrate creativity into some of the discussions and guests that have come on the podcast for that reason. But I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, creativity. How do you see that playing out in the landscape of self-care? Yeah, I can I can start on that. So we really, when we like to think at least <laughs> that the creativity piece is something uh, that um, we're sort of uniquely contributing to the self-care landscape because uh, it, it, it hasn't really been emphasized um, enough and, and it is so incredibly important. And, um, you know, creativity is really how, right. This is how innovation happens in the world. This is how transformation happens. Right. And it's, Creativity is what allows us to sort of have some openness to experiment, right? To sort of not be um, rigidly attached to outcomes. And I think anytime that is possible, that's when we get transformation, right? And that's when we can, again, be leading these lives we don't have to escape from. We can actually be growing and thriving um, 
actually our, our, our tagline in our, the newsletter that, that we send out uh, is uh, TGIF, which stands for Thrive, Grow, Inspire, Flourish. And, and that's really inspired by this idea of creativity, building a life we don't have to escape from, really putting um, ourselves into our days. And, and so we also like to think of creativity as being about both creativity and play, because both of these are, are what facilitate and encourage uh, transformation and, and growth. And, and again, this idea that we, we can sort of be like outcome independent, right? We can kind of be engaging in activities simply for um, the process, right? For the journey, as opposed to the, the outcome. Uh, and so uh, a lot of our, our, our messaging uh, and kind of some of the practical practical ideas that we've shared in our workshops and, and with our newsletter community uh, is really around kind of thinking outside the box a little bit, or even thinking inside the box to help ourselves think outside the box, <laughs> um, which just, just meaning, you know, when we have a little bit of a, a framework like this, it can actually give us more freedom to, um, to, to, to focus on what, what matters most to us and, uh, and, and to be a little bit more playful and creative and okay. Uh, again, this isn't just about bubble baths and chocolate, right? This is, <laughs> and again, that it's individual. Why, why not Melissa? Let's just pot down. No, <laughs> well, and actually, so that's, that's the point of it being individualized, right? If bubble baths and chocolate are your thing, then do that, but intentionally do it, right? Make it um, an integral part of what you do and not just an afterthought or something that you get you that you get around to when there's, uh, you know, um, some magical unicorn space in your schedule, right? <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, and, and we might have talked about this a little bit in our, our previous interview with you, Pete, but I think it, it bears repeating. Like, again, so much of our current day-to-day um, -day lives, especially throughout the pandemic, has been, right, virtual this, virtual that, consuming information. I mean, certainly when it comes to news media, right, uh, or even just, you know, our, our lives on social media these days, right, so much of what we do is sort of this passive receiving of information. And what creativity allows is to actually be producing something, right, whether it's a drawing, a painting, making supper, um, writing a newsletter article, producing a podcast, right? Or even what we do in therapy uh, is very creative, right? Even just coming up with new ideas, um, that's all creativity. And we, even though many people don't think that they're creative, we all are. And we're maybe just not defining creativity broadly enough. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we really think of it as uh, creativity is what allows us to produce something instead of just being a passive recipient of inputs or information. That's really also what is fundamentally that what makes us human, being able to produce things, create things, come up with new ideas, new technologies, and, and even just using our hands is really such a big part of being human. And I think the more we can be connecting with what really makes us who we are, that that is going to be such a, a fundamental part of good self-care as well. Wonderful. Karen, was there anything that you wanted to add around the creativity piece? Um, you know, I, th I think what I, maybe that what I'll add is when it comes to creativity and play, 
you know, I think it is about how we define those and and how broad we we think. I actually found this quite um, qu quite an important component of my own self care because it allowed me to think about some of the things that I've always really loved doing, but other people would kind of um, judge judge them as being work related and trying to convince me to do other things, right? Like, oh, you're always working. Why don't you go get a manicure, right? Back to the bubble baths and the massages and everything. And there was a part of me that felt like I was doing something wrong when I was really enjoying things like mowing the lawn and doing my gardening and researching recipes and cooking and you know some of my friends would say well geez you know you're always working why don't you do something uh enjoyable and it it's this has really helped me shift my thinking around those things right they are creative they are playful activities for adults and I and I don't need to feel bad about those and and I need to feel good about doing those things and and think about them as part of my self-care and so for me, it's really kind of broadened my ideas about self-care and has really allowed me to give permission to myself and not feel apologetic for spending my Saturday mowing my lawn and not letting my husband do it because that's my thing. So it's it's just really broadened my perspective in terms of uh, the components of self-care in, in very positive ways. The uh, Jungian deaf psychologist, uh, Dr. James Hollis, talks about this very simple litmus test of is this expanding me as a person or is this contracting me? And Karen, and what I hear you say is that you, you've noticed a sense of expansion in engaging in those things. And I think as long as there is that sense of expansion, we probably are tapping into creativity, play, uh, unexpected outcomes, you know, all the, all the things that mm -hmm. Melissa talked about sort of make us human as part of the human experience and the journey that we're, that we're all on. Melissa and Karen, I have so enjoyed the conversation today. I appreciate your, your perspective so much. The intentional therapist message is really uh, at the moment, like a nice ray of sunshine among some various sort of trying circumstances, but of which there's also some really neat opportunities too. And I'm glad that we touched a little bit of all the different things that are going on. I want to give you the last word here. Uh, if people are interested in learning more about intentional therapists, uh, where can they go? Are there any initiatives or activities or, or anything that you have ongoing that you would like to let the listenership know about? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, we certainly in, invite people to visit our website, intentionaltherapist.ca. And uh, we actually do have a full day workshop coming up in, uh, in October. So, you know, if folks want to um, go to our website or email us for, for some additional information, folks can sign up for our newsletter and uh, people who are subscribers of our newsletter are kind of the first to get information about uh, upcoming workshops and events, et cetera. So uh, we certainly invite folks to, to visit us there. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for making the time today. I, again, I really enjoyed the discussion. I, I've always enjoyed our discussions. In fact, it really gets into territory that, um, you know, we don't often talk about. It's not talked about in training as we spoke about, but ultimately it becomes so fundamental to a sustainable practice over time. And uh, I, I hope we've added something to the discussion today uh, that will help people maybe reflect a little bit on where they're at and perhaps where they need to go and what's, and what's working well. All right. Well, thanks so much. We'll, uh, I hope to talk to both of you soon. Yes. And it, hopefully we'll get to have a conversation one day that doesn't involve the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe the fifth C, some chocolate. We could, we yes. could, it, we, 
<laughs> we could we could do some uh, integrative uh, conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Thank you so much, Pete. It was great talking with you again. Yes. Thanks so much. Okay. No problem. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.